Hey, this is Pastor Rick, and I just wanted to let you know while you're listening to this Bible study that it's accompanied by the sounds of freedom. <laughs> we had jets flying overhead. They were, they were pretty loud. Um, I've done the best I can to go through and take out the extra jet noise, but uh, you may just want to turn down the volume a little bit, and, uh, but stick with it. I think it's valuable and it's worth your time. God bless. Exodus chapter 15, we're going to pick up right where we left off. Actually, if you've opened up to Exodus 15, keep a finger there and flip over to Luke chapter 21 for a moment. Luke 21. It's been very interesting that... um, in the wake, no pun intended, of the tsunami, on all the news channels and as you watch and, and see the world's reaction and the, the, the stunned shock that, uh, as the news puts it, Mother Nature could have such a, um, an, an impact and that such a horrible thing could happen. Uh, everybody is now in the mode of trying to explain and understand it trying to see what, what this could possibly mean. Even to the point that last night, and I forget which channel it was on, but I think it was Annie Graham Lotz uh, was on, was it MSNBC? And they were talking with her, and I believe she brought up this verse. Now, I was just kind of passing through the room, and, and my father-in-law actually told me that, that she had actually shared this verse, read this verse. It's the same verse that we read on Sunday, and I want to look at it again. Because I realized Sunday morning we read one verse, but there's a very important follow-up to it that we didn't read. And it was in my notes to read, I just kind of spaced it. But it's so important in this day and age and in what we see going on in the world around us, that we understand God's perspective of things. And that we see and know what God is trying to tell us. And I do, for one, I believe that we have an answer to the why of the tsunami. And... Um, other signs and things that we will see happening in the world around us. But looking at Luke chapter 21, verse 25, Jesus tells us, There will be signs in sun and moon and stars, and on the earth dismay among the nations, in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves, men fainting from fear, and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Verse 27, Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. But when these things begin to take place, and here's where you've got to lock in, pay attention. When these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. The Bible says, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift up your heads. Now, what world religions are saying about the tsunami about that tidal wave and about the massive death that we have seen. World religions are saying, it's judgment. God is hammering. The Indians are saying, God is upset with us. You know, the Muslims are saying, you know, Allah is angry. And I don't think that's the point at all. Is judgment being doled out? I think that's possible. I'm not in the place to say. As we said on Sunday, it is interesting that Indonesia is the largest the largest of all countries in the world Muslim population. It's also interesting that, as we said Sunday, that very morning was a Muslim holy day and that there were Muslims out consecrating themselves to their God Allah on the beaches when the tidal wave hit. 
that being said, I don't want to go to that place of judgment. What I do want to do is go to the place of awareness. Because I believe that God has, for centuries now, He's laid out prophecies, He's given us direction, so that we would do one specific thing. Not judge each other, not look out, and even in other world religions and say, you know, and, and point the finger and, and even in a sick kind of twisted way laugh that they're getting wiped out. That's not the point. God wants us to be aware of something that is incredibly important to us, and that is His coming. His return. And so, 2,000 years ago, and even thousands of years prior to that, in biblical prophecy, God began to lay out things so that we could be aware. So that our eyes could be open. As Paul said, we are not of the darkness. We are children of light. So these things should not take us by surprise. And as Jesus says, when you see these things, when these things begin to take place, signs in the sun, moon, and stars, perplexity among the governments and the nations, the roaring of the sea and the waves, things that are unnatural, things that are amazing. Do you realize in the last decade there have been more earthquakes and more massive earthquakes than any time in recorded earthquake history? And the Bible talks about there will be earthquakes in diverse places. Why? It's a sign. It is yet another sign where God is saying, lift up your heads, straighten up, be aware, be alert, and know that yes, I am going to come. For us as Christians, what that says is, share my word. Number one, live in hope. Be happy about the fact that I am coming. As Russ just said out here, we're getting the heater started. He's trying to fill it up with gas. And Kathy says, is there anything I can do for you? And he said, yeah, pray for the rapture. And I think that's right on. That's, that's a great attitude. And it was tongue-in-cheek, but there's a note of seriousness in a statement like that. Keep your eyes open, straighten up, lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And I want you to key in on that thought as we head back into Exodus. That your redemption is drawing near. And whenever you feel dismayed or perplexed, whenever you feel fearful at the things going on, even the maybe little things, seemingly little things in your life, the Lord says, straighten up, lift up your head. Don't worry about it. Your redemption, it's right around the corner. It's in a place where you can't see it right now, which is why you're dismayed. It's why I'm perplexed. I don't see what's happening next month or even tomorrow or even later this evening. I don't have that kind of vision. But God says, straighten up and lift up your head. Your redemption's near. It's very close. It's closer than you might think. And that is not only the grand redemption when God calls his children home. But it's also the redemption we feel and face and, and, and receive from the Lord on a daily basis. Forgiveness that we didn't expect. Relationships restored that were surprising. Things settling down and working out. Getting a job that we didn't think we were going to get. All these things as we walk through our lives, they're near. They're right around the corner. And God works this way. His hand often moves just on the other side of dismay. Have you ever noticed that in your life? How often God brings you to a place where you are just beside yourself and then the next thing you know, He's beside you. And He's brought the answer. But it's as if He waits until we get to that place. Until we stop and, and we're just freaking out. We're saying, Lord, I just don't know how I can handle this. And boom, then He brings the answer. And I've wondered in my life, why not bring the answer the day before? Why do I have to wait until I'm stressed out and freaking out about things before you bring the answer? And it's very simple. He's testing us. He is proving us. 
as he does with the children of Israel. And you will see over and over and over in this exodus. And God says his own words, I did this to test them, to prove them, to prove what's truly inside, what's really going on. Now as we head back to Exodus again, keep this in mind. Because as we said before, prior to Christmas, let me draw back and help you remember some things. It's one thing to get the people out of Egypt. It's another thing to get Egypt out of the people. It's one thing to pull us out of the world and save us. It's yet another thing to get the world out of us. And that's what we spend the rest of our lives doing. As Paul says, we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We're working out in our salvation. We're getting the world out. And that's what God is doing in our lives. It's why he planned, and you can flip back now to Exodus 15, it's why he planned a year-long journey for Israel. Granted, it turned into 40 years. They needed more testing and more work. But he planned at the outset to take Israel on a year-long journey. How do you know that, Rick? Because it takes them a year to get from Egypt down into Sinai Peninsula back up to where they actually land on the edge of the the Promised Land. It's a one-year journey. There's a reason he did that. It's for training. It's for testing. It's for proving what is in the heart of Israel. Well, the same holds true for you and I in this world. God is training us, preparing us, testing us, purifying us for that day when we will enter our promised land. And that's when we go home to be with Jesus. Now, as we've seen, quick review, Israel has several stops on this journey. And here's a couple that we've looked at before. A couple of campsites. From the point where they left Exodus, they start out on this journey, and there are several campsites. We covered these, but I want to bring these back to mind, and we'll go on with some more campsites tonight. Campsite number one was Sukkot. Sukkot. S-U-C-C-O-T-H. Sukkot means tent town. Their very first stop is tent town. And if you recall back, they're dressed for it. They look like backpackers. So Sukkot is tent town, and Israel was dressed for travel. Now, the lesson we learned from that is that we are sojourners. We've talked about that so much all the way back when we were studying for Genesis, and we were looking at Abraham's life, the life of a sojourner, and Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, the sojourning family of Israel. Well, the lesson is that we are sojourners, and God is reminding the people of Israel that they are sojourners. What does that mean for us? It means travel light. It means don't get so locked in, so heavy into the things in this world that you aren't ready to go when God says, let's go. Remember the world is not your home. Well, the second campsite, they went from Sukkoth to Ethan. And Ethan means literally with us. With us. Remember that place was on the edge of the wilderness. They're about to go into the wilderness. It's vast. It's spread out before them. It's pretty dismal and hopeless. And as they camp there, they camp at a place called With Us. And the second lesson we learned from that is God is my shelter. I'm a sojourner in this world, but I do have a shelter. I do have a place that I call home. My, my temporary home in this world is my permanent home for eternity, and it's the Lord. He's my shelter. He covers me. We watched Israel like covered with that cloud by day and the fire by night. And the lesson there is that we stay under that cloud, that we stay within the cloud, that we move where the Lord moves, and we keep our eyes fixed on the things of the Lord. God is my shelter. I'm a sojourner, but God's my shelter. Well, campsite number three. God then takes the children of Israel to Pihahiroth and Migdal. Pihahiroth and Migdal. Pihahiroth meaning the mouth of the caves. Migdal, the tower. Basically, they were wedged in between these two places with the Red Sea in front of them, and the only way to go back 
ended up being covered by the Egyptian army. You remember the story. And the only way out was either to face Egypt and the army or to go across the Red Sea, which was absolutely impossible. But lesson number three, God is sovereign. I'm a sojourner, but God is my shelter. And I need to remember as I move through this life, God is sovereign. When I'm boxed in, when there's no way out, when I'm in a tight spot, there are times, surprisingly enough, there are times where God will do that and it really has very little to do with me. We, re- we need to remember there are times in our lives where we get into a difficult place and we're saying, God, why are you doing this? And then he gets us out of that place and we may even look back and not understand. Why did you do I'm not sure what I learned from that. And what we don't realize is that there was someone else that God was touching. Someone else that God was revealing himself to through us in our lives. And it really doesn't matter if it's for me or for another person because God is the sovereign God. Now in Exodus 15, that behind us there, three places, Sukkoth, Edom, Pihahiroth, and Migdal, and now we come down to Exodus 15 and they head on out of that. They've gone through the Red Sea. It's an amazing experience. And when they come out of the other side of it, a few weeks back we saw this, chapter 15, verse 1 through 21 is the Song of Israel. They bust out into spontaneous, spirit-led worship. And by the way, it had to be spirit-led. And I think it was Leslie who made this comment the other day. It had to be spirit-led. How would two to three million people, how could they possibly know all the words to the song and sing it all at the same time? Unless the Holy Spirit was leading them to sing. Something amazing happened and they all began to sing together and to worship God in the song of Moses and Israel. So they broke into joyful song, but here's what's amazing. We'll pick up in verse 22 of chapter 15. The song is barely off their lips. There are little musical notes still hanging in the air when their dismay returns. Now just for timing, here in verse 22, they are a month and a half out from Egypt. They've only been out of Egypt a month and a half. It's not that long ago. Furthermore, they've just been now three days from the Red Sea experience. Three days. Now, I don't know about you, but when we have an awesome worship experience on a Sunday morning, it usually lasts me, well, usually at least 24 hours. Usually it lasts me into the week, and I think about it, and I, and I feed on it, but isn't it amazing how quickly it drops away? They had been three days from the Red Sea. And I want you to know, if we go long tonight, this is not my fault. Add up all the little two to three second pauses. Okay. Yeah, it was on and on. I know I'm I'm under pressure here. Okay. Exodus 15:22. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur. We talked about the wilderness before. This is a bad place, a barren place, hot, dry, nothing to it. The tumbleweed occasionally rolls by, and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Three days. Now they were just worshiping. They had just walked through a lot of water, the Red Sea, and now they're without water. And it says, verse 23, when they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore it was named Marah. So the people grumbled at Moses saying, what shall we drink? Campsite number four is Marah, and Marah means bitterness. The word Mara means bitterness. That's why it's named Mara, because they get there. They're all excited. Think about this. The word goes back down through the ranks. We found water. Hooray! We found water. Praise the Lord. We're going to drink now. This is good. We're so thirsty. We're dying of thirst. 
they get there and the first person takes a sip and it is undrinkable. Talk about a slap in the face. That's horrible. You lead a horse to water, but he can't drink. And here's Israel, and they've got this song in their heart. The song is lost because they're so thirsty, and when they finally do see water three days later, they can't drink it. And my friends, God led them there. We've come through the sea. We've been let out in triumph. It's not supposed to be this way. It's supposed to be better than this. What's going on? What shall we drink? How many relationships start out so well and end in bitterness? How many hopeful job opportunities eventually leave a bitter aftertaste? How many new churches start off with sweet faith, only then to crash and burn into bitter speculation? How often does that kind of thing happen? But listen, when we find ourselves dealing with bitter aftertaste in life, what we need is a refresher course in what we've been given. We've been given something amazing that will help us deal with Mara, bitterness. What is that? The Bible calls him living water. John chapter 7, verse 38, Jesus said these words. And if you don't have this underlined in your Bibles, I would encourage you to underline it. I would encourage you to memorize it. This is something we need that will help us deal with bitterness. And if you've ever, if, I'll tell you what, if you're human, you've dealt with bitterness in your life. There is somebody or has been somebody in your life that when you think of them, or when you have thought of them in the past, your heart goes sour. And we know that bitterness is a negative thing, and we know that it feeds on itself, and we know we don't want us. How do I deal with it? Jesus says if anyone is thirsty, and hearken back to the waters of Marah, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Now John adds this. John says, by this or but this he spoke of the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. Those who believed in him are you and me. That as we develop this relationship with Jesus, as we have faith in him, we receive an amazing gift, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Israel did not have the indwelling Holy Spirit. Why was the Israel grumbling so often and so much? They did not have the Spirit of God. They had the Lord before them. They could see the cloud and the fire. But they didn't have the Spirit dwelling in them. How do we deal with bitterness? Come to Jesus and drink freely of His Spirit. Ephesians 5.18, we've quoted this verse several times. Get this in your heads. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. But be filled with the Spirit. God says, you know, the world's going to offer you all kinds of options like wine. And wine is the example that Paul uses, but there are many things that are similar to wine that we can fill up on. Things that make us feel better. Places we can go that numb us from painful situations or frustration. Things that we can take that will relax us. And God says, you know, you can do all that stuff, but why do that when you can be filled with my spirit? And if you're filled with my spirit, it's a totally different thing because it does not wear off. Now, it's interesting to me, Paul says, don't get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. I always wonder what exactly dissipation meant. So I looked it up. It's the Greek word, asotia. Asotia. It is a negative derivative of another Greek word, which is the word sozo, salvation. 
In other words, what Paul is saying is that drunkenness is akin to unsavedness. To get drunk is to act like the unsaved. What is it that the unsaved do? An unsaved person tries to meet needs and fill needs with anything they can to get by in life. That's unsavedness. But to be a saved person, I don't need that. I don't need all the stuff that life puts in front of me to help me get by from this day to the next. I need the Holy Spirit. When I'm dealing with bitterness toward a person, toward a situation, even toward the Lord, if I'm frustrated in my life, what I need is a reminder that we have the Holy Spirit of the living God. I love vanilla Pepsi. I shouldn't, but I do. It's become my newest and most favorite vice. And meanwhile, Cheryl's telling me, why don't you just drink water? It's so much better for you. Here's the deal. The more vanilla Pepsi I drink, the less I want water. The less I desire the water because I want that sweet, you know, taste with the little kick that you get. I want that. I don't want water. And if I have a glass of water, it's bland and it's tasteless. But this is amazing to me. And in our lives, where I have sworn off vanilla Pepsi, I say, Cheryl, don't buy anymore. So she doesn't buy it and it's not there anyway, so all I can drink is water. After two or three or four days of just drinking water, the water gets better. It tastes sweeter. I like it. I actually enjoy drinking water until I have another vanilla Pepsi. And then I'm off again. And it just, it's this constant cycle. And I, pray for me, please, this whole Pepsi issue. But I use that just as an example with the Holy Spirit that we can imbibe on things of the world. We can take in these things that make us feel better for a season. Give us a little kick. Get us through. But they are not the Holy Spirit. The problem is, as we take of these things, as we drink of the things of the world, we cease desiring the Holy Spirit. That's where we can quench the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. No, no, no. I, I, you know, I could pray about it right now, or I could just sit in the chair and watch a movie because I just need to relax. And the Spirit's saying, talk to me. Because what we need right now is that interaction. That's going to make you better. That's going to take away your bitterness. No, I just, I just need to forget the world and watch Top Gun. And so we lose our connection. Be careful drinking anything that alters your moods. If you need altering, let it be by the filling of the Holy Spirit. Well, camp number four is Mara. It's bitterness. What's the lesson we learn? That God's Spirit is sweet. Psalm 34, verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Now, reading on verse 25. The people have said, what shall we drink? The waters are bitter. They're grumbling. They're becoming bitter. And it says that Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him, the Lord showed him a tree. He didn't create a tree. He didn't suddenly grow a tree. He showed him a tree. The tree was there all along. And he threw it into the waters, and the waters became sweet. And there he made for them a statute and regulation, and there he tested them or proved them. And he said, If you will give earnest heed to the voice of the Lord your God, and do what is right in his sight, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have put on the Egyptians, for I, the Lord, am your healer. It's an interesting choice here. God can do anything He wants to do miracles. He can use anything He wants. And in this situation, He chooses a tree. The water is bitter, and so God says, Moses, see that tree? 
chop it down, toss it into the water. And when Moses does that, the water becomes sweet. Now, understand, there was nothing mystical about the tree. It was just a tree. It wasn't somehow that it had special cleansing properties. It wasn't that in the Middle East at that time there were certain plants that you could put in the water to sweeten it if it was bitter. It was a tree like any other. But the tree was important because it symbolizes two other trees that do take away bitterness. Galatians 3 verse 13 tells us that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the curse of the law having become a curse for us for it is written cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree the tree that I'm immediately reminded of here the tree that takes away bitterness it's the cross the cross of Jesus Jesus became cursed on that tree that you and I might receive salvation from the bitterness of death. 1 Corinthians 15.51 Paul wrote, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. We will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable. And this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where's your victory? O death, where's your sting? The cross takes away the sting, the bitterness of death. The sting of death, Paul says, is sin. And the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to give you a little hint here, a little clue about this issue of bitterness. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit takes bitterness out of my life. But so does the cross. And here's how I believe that works. God says, I died not only for your sins, but the Bible tells us He died for the sins of the world. Which means that if someone has sinned against me, creating that sense of bitterness in my heart toward them. If someone has sinned against me, rather than grumbling against them, what I need to recognize is God has already paid for that sin. My humanity cries out, there's got to be justice. This is not fair. I have not been treated right by this person. Therefore, someone needs to pay the price. They need to pay for it. And God would say, you look at the cross. I paid for it. I paid for it. I paid for their sin. Now, whether they reconcile with the Lord is between them and the Lord. But as far as I'm concerned, you want to pull bitterness out of my heart? I need to look at the cross, that tree on which Jesus died for the sins that I've committed, the bitterness that I've created in other people's lives. But there's another tree, another sweet tree that the cross leads us to. Revelation 22 verse 1 tells us, He showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the, from the throne of God and of the Lamb, in the middle of the street. And on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Tree number two is the tree of life. God says, Moses, take this tree, throw it into the water, it'll take away bitterness. Well, the cross says that, but so does the tree of life. It removes our bitterness. And God says the tree will stand in New Jerusalem. The tree of life will stand there and its leaves are for healing. And I think this is beautiful because God at the end of verse 26 calls himself the Lord your healer. I the Lord am your healer. In the Hebrew, it's Jehovah Rapha. Jehovah Rapha, I am your healer. 
Now I want you to watch the consistent graciousness of the Lord contrasted with the bitter complaining of Israel. Because God is always there and He's always faithful to save and provide. And again, remember this. When you're dismayed or perplexed or bitter or fearful, you lift up your head because your redemption draws near. Jehovah Rapha is about to heal. Before we go on to verse 27, one more thing about bitterness in our lives. It does serve a specific purpose. Bitterness and hardship and toil and difficulty in this life has a wonderful purpose. It makes us long for home. It makes us desire not to be here. When things go wrong and things are problematic and problematic and things are stressful, it makes me want out. And that's exactly what God wants in my heart. A heart that is ready to go. A heart that is looking for Him. Jesus is preparing a place, He said in John 14.1. I prepare a place for you. That where I am, you may also be. And He's preparing this place. And I, for one, cannot wait until it's done. Well, verse 27. Then they came to Elim. Elim. This is campsite number 5. They came to Elim where there were twelve springs of water and seventy date palms and they camped there beside the waters and so here God has just done it takes them into a difficult place a hard place, a bitter place they're dismayed, they're frustrated, they're complaining and where's the very next place God takes them? a beautiful oasis and by the way it's believed that both these places are still there um, nowadays, today, this, this place, Elim, is called Wadi Gerondel and is a lush oasis today. In fact, on, a, on the trip between Suez and Sinai, it is the primary rest stop that Arabs and travelers will, will take because it's a beautiful, lush, well-watered, sweet oasis. On the other hand, Mara is still there as well and the waters there are bitter to this day. So apparently, when they put the tree in the water, it just sweetened it long enough for Israel to drink. And when they moved on, it was bitter again. It's interesting. Elim. They stop at campsite number five, and it's Elim. What does Elim mean? It means mighty ones. Mighty ones. Another translation of that would be mighty trees. Either mighty ones or mighty trees. And you can see the mighty trees because among the 12 huge springs of water were 70 date palm trees. And there are a couple of things to know about this, to understand. And let me just share with you, anytime you see numbers in the scripture, just pause long enough to see if there may not be a reason for the numbers. Seventy date palm trees and twelve springs. Does the number twelve ring a bell for you? When you think of twelve in the Bible, what comes to mind? The disciples, the twelve apostles. Is there a connection there? I think there is. What about 70? 70 palm trees, the 70 elders of Israel. What's being said here? What are we saying? I want you to track with me for a moment here and think about this. The Bible, considering the trees, the 70 palm trees, the Bible compares a man of the word to a tree that is planted by water. Psalm chapter 1, verse 1, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the path of sinners, or sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and and in whatever he does he prospers. You want to be strong. You want to be a mighty one of God. The first key is that you are in the Word. Because a man or a woman of the Word is like a tree planted by water, the psalmist tells us. 
By the way, something's interesting here about these 70 date palms. Did you know palm trees are the only tree that actually bear more fruit the older they get? They don't wind down as other trees will get old and, and rotted and, and naughty and begin to drop fruit and then eventually not give fruit at all and then eventually die. But a palm tree will give more and more and more fruit right up to when it finally dies. More fruit for the older the tree. Amazing. Palm trees, as they grow older, as they mature, bear more fruit. And I think there's a lesson in that as well. But there's more than just the maturity of, of aging in the word here. These aren't just palm trees. These are 70 palm trees. And Moses points it out, specifies this number, for I believe this reason. Exodus 24 tells us the number 70 is assigned to the elders of Israel. Later in Numbers chapter 11, verses 10 through 25, these 70 men are given specific roles of coming alongside Moses and shepherding Israel, functioning as elders for Israel. Now, I want to ask you a question, just a a thought question. What do you think is the most important thing elders can do in a church? What's the most important thing that an elder does or should do? We have an answer for that, and it's one that that I constantly bring up and we talk about among our elders at the bridge. Acts 6.4, we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And if you were to ask me, give me the two most important things an elder can do in a church, I would say pray and be in the Word. Prayer and the ministry of the Word. Now there's something interesting here though. I've always thought of it as two things. I'll just throw this out and we'll come back to it in a second. But I've always thought of it as prayer and the ministry of the Word. I actually think there are three things going on here. Prayer, the Word, and ministry. Prayer, the Word, and ministry. It's not just being in the Word and having the Word minister to yourself, but it's the ministry of the Word. It's the counsel that comes by the Word. It's bringing the Word to other people in a serving, in a ministry sense. Now hold that thought. It is my prayer that this is the primary role of elders at the bridge. Similar to the 70 date palms, to nourish the flock primarily through prayer and the ministry of the Word of God. And you know what's great? And this is very cool for you guys who are here tonight, who are elders specifically. You're going to bear more fruit as you get older. It doesn't go the other way around. As our physical bodies begin to bear less fruit and to look less fruitful, spiritually, we bear more. And the longer we walk with the Word, and this goes to all of us, the more fruit we bear for the Lord. I love this verse, ran across it this week. Psalm 92, verse 12. The righteous man will flourish like a palm tree. He will grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Planted in the house of the Lord, they will flourish in the courts of our God. They will still yield fruit in old age. They shall be full of sap. I'm not saying that we have saps for elders. It just says, they will be full of sap and very green. To declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. Now consider this. This idea of leaders, the 70 palm trees, the 12 springs, the 12 apostles, the 70 elders of Israel. Jesus in his ministry, Mark chapter 3 verses 13 through 19, chose the 12 apostles. And ultimately those 12 apostles would be filled with the Holy Spirit. Like 12 springs of living water, these men would be filled with the Spirit of God. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus chose and sent out 70 missionaries. 70 people who went out. 12 springs of sweet water. 70 palm trees. And I think there's a lesson to be learned and understood just in this one verse. That there is a key 
to strength and refreshment here. To strength and refreshment in the Lord. A clue as to actually how to become a mighty one of God. As we're at Elim, which means mighty ones, the lesson is this. Mighty ones are, I'm going to give you three things to jot down real quickly. Mighty ones are planted in the Word. To be a mighty one of God is to be planted in the Word of God. But mighty ones are also, secondly, nourished by the Spirit. Nourished by the Spirit. Planted in the Word, nourished by the Spirit. But number three, and this for me was the most surprising, but it makes absolute perfect sense. Planted in the Word, nourished by the Spirit, refreshed, refreshed, check this out, refreshed in service. Refreshed in service. What do you mean by that? I had a really interesting conversation earlier this week talking with someone about the whole idea of people taking a break from ministry. And you know, the Lord put this thought on my mind. What happens when in a marriage situation we determine to take a break? In my ministry life, when I've seen people say we're going to separate for a time to work things out, typically separating does not work. Separating just drives a deeper wedge. In ministry, many times people will say, I'm just tired, I'm worn out, I can't do this anymore. I just need a break. And when we do that, in the same way as in a marriage, we separate ourselves from the very place I believe that God says we can find our refreshment. I was a young youth pastor. I've been in youth ministry three years, and I was burned out. I was wiped out. I was tired. The first church that I worked at, some great people there, but it was a really hard road. I had no idea what I was getting into. And by the time I resigned and left there and was headed for the next church, we were talking about this last night, I was wiped out. I crossed the threshold of the second church that I worked at in Fairfax, Virginia. And the thought running through my mind as I walked into that building was, Oh Lord, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can continue here. These really gracious people have offered me a job. They're taking us in. I have a new opportunity to do ministry and I am tired. And God taught us something. He taught us in that place that refreshment comes in ministry. It comes in service. Serving and doing ministry is not the problem. Sometimes my heart is the problem. But if you look at, at what, what's going on here, this, this whole idea that, that, that Jesus calls the twelve apostles and He sends them out. And then He calls the seventy missionaries and sends them out. We can live in Mara, in bitterness, or we can live as mighty ones. It's our choice. But I'm learning that the way God brings me out of bitterness is to put me into service. To put me into ministry. Why is that? Because the more I'm caring for and concerned about other people, the less I'm worried about what's going on here. The more I'm focused on the needs of others, the less important my needs seem. And there's just an interesting, it's ironic, it doesn't make sense possibly from the, the world standard. The world always says, man, you're tired, take a break. God says, no, if you're tired, do ministry. Be involved in the work of the Lord. Because there is refreshment there. Remember, Jesus says, my burden is easy. My yoke is light. If you walk alongside me, work with me. And I'm not talking about ministry the way, unfortunately, a lot of times it happens in church where there are demands and expectations and law and legalism. And if you don't get it done, boy, you're just not really living up to your commitment. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about walking with Jesus, being sensitive to the Spirit, 
and ministering in the way that He calls us to. Because when we're connected up to Him, yoked up to Him, that burden is light. We can be mighty in the Lord if we're planted in the Word, if we're nourished by the Spirit and refreshed in service. Well, chapter 16, verse 1. They set out then from Elim, and all the congregation of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin. (laughs) That's what it's called, the wilderness of Sin. That's campsite number 6. They come to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after their departure from the land of Egypt. Okay, 15th day, second month, month and a half now. And the whole congregation of the sons of Israel were so thankful that the Lord had provided sweet water at Marah and then taken them to a wonderful, refreshing oasis. They praised... No, I'm sorry, that's not what it says at all. The whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses in the wilderness of sin. Isn't that ironic? They grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the sons of Israel, verse 3, said to them, Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat and when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. It's amazing to me. These were the same Israelites who not long before were crying out at the bitterness of their bondage in Egypt. And now when they think back to Egypt, all they remember is their meat pots and their bread and their afternoons of relaxing at McPharaoh's. This is what they think it was like. And isn't that typical of humanity that the glory days, the days behind us, we look back that oftentimes someone will become a Christian and then they'll look back at their life before Christ and actually have some fond memories. Oh man, you remember that time? We got so smashed. And it was great. It was the fun, one of the funnest, funniest nights of my... We are so... When we look back, it's amazing how our lives, how our memories get twisted. And that's what's going on with Israel. They're looking back at a horrible situation and all they can remember is the good stuff. Egypt, leeks and onions, spices. And right now we've got this water and, and nothing to eat and we're starving out here. And you brought us out here to die. Let me tell you, our memory of the past is extremely deceptive. The past is not what we think it was. The glory days are ahead of us, not behind us. Now I remember, you know, as, as a 40-year-old man now, when I look back at high school, I remember being able to play basketball so much better than I could play it right now. But when I really stop and think about high school, if you ask me the question, would you like to go back there? The answer is not on your life. When I think about what it was really like. When I look back to junior high and stuff I had to deal with there and fears and doubts and problems in my life, I would never want to go back there. But I think about the glory days, you know, when I made that shot from half court and won the game. It was great. It was awesome. Remember when I slammed dunked one time, and I did, one time in a game, impressing the entire team and myself very much. But the glory days are not. The rim was lower, but that wasn't part of the story. Thanks, Russ. (laughs) But Israel's looking back at their bondage in Egypt, a slavery that led them to cry out to the Lord for salvation. And now they're saying, we have meat pots. I mean, it's amazing. Pots of meat sitting around. We just eat any time we want at Big Macs galore. We were having a great time. And you brought us out here to die. And Satan whispers to us the good times were back before our Christian lives. And again, I ask, was Egypt really all that great? 
If you stop for a moment and think about what life was like before you came to Christ, was it really that great? Was it all that you think it might have been? It's hard being a Christian. It's hard bearing up. Sometimes it's hard trying to do the right thing. I just, I don't want to do the right thing. I want to do what I used to do. But remember what you used to do got you to the point where you cried out for salvation. And God brought it. So what does God do? Children are griping, they're complaining, they're looking back, and God hammers them. No, that's not what he does. It's what I would have done. My wrath would have rained down, but the Lord said to Moses, verse 4, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether or not they will walk in my instruction. He should have rained down judgment, but he rains down bread. What's the test here, though? He's going to give them what we're going to discover is manna. How is that a test? Jesus said in Matthew 6.11, Give us this day our daily bread. And I believe the question God has for the people of Israel, it's the same question He has for us, is what are they going to do with it? What are you going to do with the bread that God rains down on you? What are you going to do with the bread? How are you going to handle the dough? The paycheck? The potential? The opportunity? The relationships God puts into your life? What are you going to do with them? How are you going to deal with the daily bread that God gives you? That's the test. Again, the test, the test. Back in verse 25, it says that he tested them. And again here in verse 4, he, he tests them. What's the idea of the test? It's a proving. It's proving. Okay, it's proving what's already in the heart of Israel. It's bringing it out. That's when you really know what's going on in somebody's life. It's when you're proven. When the hard times hit, how you respond shows what's really going on inside. What are you going to do with the bread that He rains down on you? And remember the bread in our lives, the good things, they don't come from us. They're not really ours in the first place. God wants to know what are they going to do? What is Israel going to do with the bread? And then He gives them some guidelines. Verse 5, on the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. Twice as much on the sixth day. And so Moses and Aaron said to all the sons of Israel, At evening you will know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, for he hears your grumblings against the Lord. Verse 8. And what are we that you grumble against us? Moses says, what are you getting on me for? It wasn't my idea to come get you out of Egypt. It wasn't my idea to come lead you into the wilderness. I don't know what I'm doing. I really relate to Moses here. What are you upset with me for? Nobody, by the way, has been upset with me at the bridge. But I'll tell you what. Please don't put too much stock in Pastor Rick at this church. One of the reasons why I keep wanting to surround myself with elders because I have no clue what I'm doing. We're just in the Word and we're going to see what God does. I'm not the guy to go to. The Lord is. The Lord is. Why are you grumbling against us, Moses says. And then Moses said, verse 8, this will happen. When the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and bread to the full in the morning, for the Lord hears your grumblings, which you grumble against Him, and what are we? Moses wisely says, Your grumblings are not against us, but against the Lord. And I think that's one to underline. It's one to remember. My grumblings are not against anybody but the Lord. 
My grumblings are not against other people. My grumblings, though they may seem directed at my circumstance, truly when they fall, they fall at the feet of the Lord. Because when I grumble, what am I doing? And I'm talking about me here. When I grumble, I'm discounting God's grace. When I murmur or complain, I'm discounting God's provision. I'm saying, God can't really deal with this. So I'm just going to be frustrated. I'm going to whine and complain about it. And I am saying, Lord, you are not worthy. You are not able. You're not capable of taking care of me. When I grumble. We don't really grumble at other people. We might think that we are. Because we're pointing that finger. You know, and the old thing says, you point the finger, you got three fingers pointing back at yourself. And we also got a thumb pointing directly up to the Lord. It's not other people we grumble at. It's not circumstance. It's the Lord. And the people of Israel were grumbling. And Moses says, hey, your grumblings are not against me. It's not against Aaron. Your grumblings are against the Lord. Verse 9. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumblings. It came about as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the sons of Israel that they looked toward the wilderness and behold the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, I have heard the grumblings of the sons of Israel. Speak to them saying, At twilight you shall eat meat. And in the morning you shall be filled with bread. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Verse 13, So it came about at evening that the quails came up and covered the camp. And in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. And when the layer of dew evaporated, behold, on the surface of the wilderness there was a fine flake-like thing, fine as the frost on the ground. It was the first frosted flakes. (laughs) And when the sons of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? What is it? Manha! In the Hebrew, manha. Manna. That's what manna means. What is it? While they're saying, what is it? The answer to the question is, it's the provision of God. What is it? It's God providing for you. What is it? It's bread from heaven. What is it? It's the hand of the Lord caring for your life. And the same thing happens, folks, when we share communion. And again, I've said this before, but this is why we take communion every Sunday as a church family. Some churches take it once a month, some once a year, some at different various occasions. Every week we take it. Why? Because people look at it coming around and they say, what is it? It's the testimony of the bread of heaven. The bread of heaven who, as we'll see in a moment, is Jesus. It's the testimony. What is it? When people come into the church for the first time, maybe they've never really heard much about Jesus, and they sit down and we're worshiping, and all of a sudden this little cracker and this juice is passed around, and they're sitting there looking at it, they're saying, man, huh? What is it? What is this stuff? What are they doing now? Okay, that guy's going to talk up here. Do I take it now? No, no one else is. Okay, I'll wait. And they're confused, and some churches will say, because of that, we're not going to share communion on a weekly basis. We'll do that just when believers are there because unbelievers don't get it. You know what? Unbelievers need to see it. Manha. They need to ask the question, what is it? And someone stands up here and talks about the body and the blood of Jesus. And as Paul said, every time we eat and drink of communion, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's a testimony. In the same way that the manna was the testimony of God's provision. Amazing. 
Let's read on. Verse 16. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it every man as much as he should eat. You shall take an omer apiece. What's an omer? It's about six pints. Okay, six pints apiece, according to the number of persons each of you has in his tent. So, if there were five people in a tent, they would take 30 pints. 30 pints of this manna. That's a lot. If there was two people in the tent, they'd take 12. If there were 10 people in the tent, well, you do the math. I start to get into big numbers and it really frightens me. But an omer apiece, according to the number of persons each of you has in his tent. And the sons of Israel did so. And some gathered much, and some little. And when they measured it with an omer, he who had gathered much had no excess, and he who had gathered little had no lack. Every man gathered as much as he should eat. It was perfect. It was perfect. Exactly what everybody needed to have plenty. But it wasn't too much. It wasn't overboard, and it wasn't too little. God provided exactly what they needed when they needed it. Now, conservatively, think about this. If there were only 2 million people, now I think there were probably about 3 million people in Israel at the time traveling together. But let's take it conservatively. Let's knock it back and say if there were just 2 million people, we're talking about 12 million pints of frosted flakes every day. 12 million pints provided by the Lord every day. That's 9 million pounds of bread. That's 4,500 tons of bread every morning was scattered about the camp of Israel. If you had 10 trains with 30 boxcars per train, that's how much you would need to bring in that much bread. Rolling into Israel every morning in the form of these little frosted flakes. And I am just blown away by that. Because I've heard the story about the manna. We've read about the manna before, but the, the, the sheer amount, the vast quantity that God provided for the people. And you look at this and you recognize that we have a gracious and abundantly giving Father who not only meets the need a little bit, but He meets it all that we need. Matthew 7 verse 9 says, What man, Jesus speaking, what man is there among you? When his son asks for a loaf of bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If then you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask Him? Everybody is satisfied. Everybody's cared for, at least spirit, or physically. Spiritually, spiritually, they still had a problem of wanting to go back to Egypt. Verse 19. Moses said to them, Let no man leave any of it until morning. So what they do? They did not listen to Moses. And some of them left part of it until morning. And it bred worms and became foul. And Moses was angry with them. Some of the people, Moses said, Hey, it's going to come every day. You see it here. It's a miracle that it's even here on the ground in the first place. Gather it up. Make your bread. Make your cakes. Make your casseroles. Feast. Tomorrow there will be fresh manna. Don't save it. And what do the people of Israel do? Just going to keep a little right here. Just in case God forgets. Just in case God is not faithful. Just in case God gets busy on the other side of the world and can't quite meet my needs today. I'm going to store up just a little bit of extra manna. And we do the exact same thing. Man, we've got the grace and the provision of God the Creator. And we still want to stash away our bread. We still want to put our dough in safe places and savings accounts and money market accounts and stocks and bonds and we want to invest ourselves in the things that will burn or at least get wormy. 
And that's what happens with the manna. Man, you try and store it up, you try and save it, and the next morning, it's nasty. It's gross. It's filled with maggots. You can't eat it. And Moses was angry. You know, I, this whole year I, I've talked a lot about this, this kind of weird little sojourn that we've been on. And something that I've learned, and it's been stunning to me, is there were so many very important things that we packed up in boxes a year ago when we sold our last house. So many important things that we needed. And we even have written on boxes, and you can see it. Down in the garage that's down here right now, we have it stacked up to the ceiling. And there are some boxes that say, need now, and we haven't opened them for a year. Is that hilarious? And you know what the truth is? I don't even know what's in the boxes. But if the whole thing went up in flames, I wouldn't miss it. Now, I'm sure once we get those boxes opened up and see what's inside, we'll go, oh, well, that's important. That needs to sit on the bookshelf. Oh, yeah, that little knick-knack needs to be in the window. And we can't do without that, although we've done fine for a year. Man, how we store up things. Verse 21. They gathered it morning by morning. Every man as much as he should eat, but when the sun grew hot, it would melt morning by morning day by day the provision of the Lord is constant it's consistent it comes again and again and again and when are we going to get that? when are we going to wake up in the morning and know that today God's going to provide? He provided yesterday He provided a week ago He provided last year when we were in dire straits you know what? He's going to provide today don't worry Verse 22, on the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each one. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, hey, they're gathering up two. The leaders must have missed something because that's exactly what they were supposed to do. He said to them, this is what the Lord meant. Tomorrow is a Sabbath observance. A holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil. And all that is left over, okay, put it aside to be kept until morning. And here's another principle that's amazing. All the rest of the week, he said, don't hold it. Don't save it. Don't store it up till the next day. You're not going to need it. Day by day, God's going to provide. Well, what? On the Sabbath, God's not going to provide anymore? No, he's providing all right. He's providing rest. And he says, on this day, I don't even want you to go out and gather. I will provide more the day before so that on this day, you can rest. One day a week. The day before the Sabbath, he doubled their bread so they could relax and be refreshed on the Sabbath. But some thought, some thought, hey, I can go out and get some extra dough if I work on the Sabbath. Read on. Moses said, where were we in verse 24? So they put it aside until morning, as Moses had ordered, and it did not become foul. Nor was there any worm in it. And Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. Then it came about on the seventh day, verse 27, that some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. What's going on here? Gang, the Sabbath was given before the law. That's something that's important to know. This is not a matter of legalism. This is not a matter that God gave the Sabbath as part of the Ten Commandments and the law. That's about to be given soon, but the Sabbath was pre-law. The Sabbath was given before. The Sabbath was God's intention. And by the way, the Sabbath in Israel, Israel, the Jewish people, were the first culture of people to take a day off a week. 
They were the first ones, looking back in history, to have a specific day that all they did was rest and honor the Lord. And it was God's design. It was God saying, this is what I want for you. This Sabbath break, this time of rest, this refreshment and relaxation. But there are people, there were Israelites, who that Sabbath, I can get some extra if I go out today and look. And Moses said, there's not going to be extra today. Yeah, but if I go out and work today, I can make some more bread. I can get a little bit of extra dough. And I wonder, well, I don't wonder because I know. We do the very same thing today. If I work today, I can get some extra bread. I can make a little more. American culture has created what I believe a tragedy. Even when I was a kid, Sundays were somewhat considered important. Even just in my lifetime, and prior to my lifetime, there was a time in this culture where the, where the country shut down on Sundays. Where you couldn't even go to the store because it wouldn't be open. The corner gas station would be closed on Sunday. Because the guy was at church and spending the day Sabbath with his family, resting, relaxing, and honoring the Lord. And that time in our country's history has passed, and now our Sundays are more full than almost any other day. We run harder and faster and longer on that day and God's saying, you're missing out on that day of rest. You're missing the Sabbath. One of my favorite days of the week is Sunday. And I love going down to this this house down here after services and sitting down and being with friends and just relaxing. I love that. It's my favorite day of the week. And I am reminded that God wants us to take a break. God's way, folks, is for us to take a day of rest and not to try and work it hard. And you might say, well, yeah, I've got, I've got bills to pay. Those of you who, who find yourself working on Sundays, let me just share this with you. My opinion, take it or leave it. I am convinced, I believe, that if we give the Lord the Sabbath, He will give us double to cover for that day. I really believe that. I believe financially in our families. I believe in our jobs. I believe in how we do things. If we give the Lord the Sabbath, He is going to increase the day before or the day after. He's going to increase it and we'll cover it. It's that important to the Lord. Like the manna came and double the day before. When we honor the Lord, He will care for those needs. 27, it came about on the seventh day that some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my instructions? And again, the commandments and the instructions hadn't hardly even come yet. There were only a handful. God was telling them bit by bit as they went. They didn't even have the Ten Commandments and the law yet. How long are you going to refuse my instruction? He says, See, verse 29, The Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, He gives you bread for two days on the sixth day. Remain every man in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. And so the people rested on the seventh day. And the house of Israel named it Manha. And it was like coriander seed, white, and its taste was like wafers with honey. It was sweet. It was tasty. Verse 32, Then Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer full of it be kept throughout your generations that they may see the bread that I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Moses said to Aaron, Take a jar and put an omer full, so six pints, a little six pint jar full of manna in it. Place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. And as the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. Now real quickly, the testimony is the Ark of the Covenant. They hadn't built the Ark of the Covenant yet. As as, As a matter of fact, that will be talked about later on in Exodus. 
and it will be described in detail and it's an amazing study they didn't have the Ark of the Covenant yet but they're already preparing for it and so as Moses is writing this down he's saying the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron placed it before the testimony Moses is looking back and saying after we built the Ark we put it in the Ark Okay, it was placed before the testimony. Verse 35, the sons of Israel ate the manna 40 years until they came to an uninhabited land. They ate the manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. And let me give you a little insight here. Fascinating. God gave them manna up to the very last day that they were in the wilderness. The day they set foot, and we're talking the entire 40 years, by the way. The day they set foot into the promised land, the manna stopped. They didn't have it anymore. They didn't need it. God's provision was right up to the point where they wouldn't need it anymore and that's when it stopped. It's a wonderful story. This whole giving of the manna, the giving of the water, the sweet water from bitter water, of God's provision in the wilderness of Shur and in the wilderness of sin. He gives them just enough to take them through every single day and then just enough extra to give them the benefit of sweet Sabbath rest. Now, i got to ask you to hang on for just a couple minutes more. I know we've just finished the chapter. I want to share one last thing with you tonight. And it's something to, to think about and to consider here. And uh, we're going to talk more about this next week. But Jesus takes this story and he reaches back into history, the history of Israel, and he brings it to his present day and on to our day and he applies it eternally. And he does so in two ways. In talking about the manna, there are two things Jesus says. Number one, he says, the manna is a picture of me. Not, not me, but a picture of him, Jesus. The manna, it's a picture. The bread of life is Jesus. Jesus said in John 6:48, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever, and the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The manna is me. The manna is me. Now remember, and you've got to put this all together, don't separate all these things. The story of Moses and the children of Israel, the manna that God gave, the same God who gave that manna is the one who applied it to himself. He knew what he was doing when he provided them bread in the wilderness. He knew he would refer to it later. There is a, a glorious connection in all these things and in these signs and symbols and wonders that we see throughout Scripture that then Jesus grabbed the hold of. Same thing with the Lamb. Jesus knew, think about this, when the first Lamb was created by the hand of God, God created that Lamb knowing that that Lamb was going to symbolize the death of His Son on the cross. All of this is connected. There is not coincidence with Jesus and with the Father. And we're going to talk more about how Jesus is the bread of life either, either on Sunday, maybe next Wednesday. But there's one other thing that the manna pictures, and I want you to see this before we go tonight. The manna is also a picture of the Word. It's a picture of the Word. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 7, Jesus says, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I have come in the scroll of the book. He came in the flesh. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, but He came also in the scroll of the book, in the Word. And today Jesus would say, as we feed on Him, as we take Him in, as we ingest Him and digest Him, we do so by the Word. Which is why you're here tonight. I, I still, it, it's funny to me, I, sometimes these little ideas pop into my head and we're just starting worship tonight and it was still cold and the planes are flying over and all this going on and, and I, I think, how odd is it 
that we gather together here on a cold winter's night in a barn? What is it that draws us back together? And you know the answer. It's the Word. It's the Word. It's the fact that we open this, this book and we are amazed and we are touched and, and we are drawn forward in our lives with Jesus. And earlier we saw that a mighty one is someone who is planted in the Word and nourished by the Spirit and refreshed in service. But I want to say this and, and I want you to grasp this. Think about this. Consider this. Do you know what happens to me personally on a daily basis if I'm not in the Word? I'm not talking about Wednesday night Bible study and Sunday morning. I mean, if I skip a day of being in the Word, if I go two or three days and I don't read the Word, which happened over Christmas. I took a little time off and we were moving some stuff around and I was taking a little break and I wasn't in the Word during that week between Christmas and New Year's like I am normally. What happens to me is I become dismayed. I get perplexed. I become fearful. They just thought I became crabby, and thank you so much for sharing. You know what I'm doing, though? And, and, and they're right. They're right. I get crabby. And the world becomes more difficult for me. And I get more easily frustrated, and I get shorter with people. And I begin to look back at the meat pots in Egypt. And I begin to think about how life was before I made decisions that I made that, bring me to the, that brought me to this place. When I'm out of the Word. When I'm not in the Word. Look again at verse 4 of Exodus 16. Just this one verse and listen closely. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather one day's portion, a day's portion every day, that I may test or prove them whether or not they will walk in my instruction. I'm going to give them the word every day to prove them that they will walk in my instruction. Do you see the connection here? Being in the word every day. Feasting on the manna every day. And as I do that, I am aware of the provision of the Lord. As I'm in the word daily, and it's interesting, by the way, that the manna came in the morning, which is probably the best time. If you want to set yourself to daily Bible study early in the morning, it's the best time. Well, I got things to do and I get busy. Yeah, and that's what happens. We get busy and by the end of the day we're too tired. But the manna comes in the morning. It is given in the morning. And God ties the manna here to the Word, to the instruction of the Lord. And as we pour over the Scriptures in our Bible study here, when we read the Scriptures on our own at home, in prayer, in meditation, it's not about increasing head knowledge. My hope is not that you come in on a Wednesday night and you go out and, and you know more. i got more stuff in my head now. I learned a few things I didn't know before. I can now tell you that an omer is six pints. Alright. I'll use that tomorrow at work. Yeah. Give me an omer of Pepsi, will you? Vanilla. Vanilla. Thank you. God ties this all together. Gang, walking in the instruction of the Lord every day. That's the picture that comes out so clearly here. It's how we find sweet water instead of bitterness. It's how we experience refreshment even in service and ministry, even when it's taxing. It's how we're satisfied as God provides a fresh batch of bread every day. Jesus said, give us this day our daily bread. And I don't think he was talking about groceries. Give us this day our daily bread. He wasn't talking about that first or second meal. 
He wasn't talking about physical nourishment. I know he wasn't. How do you know this? Gang, because I know how he dealt with Satan. Satan's idea, Satan doesn't get this at all. His idea of daily bread is truly half-baked. Satan comes to Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 verse 1 and says that Jesus was led thank you Mike Jesus was led up into the the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights and he became hungry and the tempter came to him and said hey if you're the son of God and you're hungry I know what you can do turn the stones into bread what did Jesus say? man shall not live on bread alone but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. God, give us today our daily bread. Give me the bread. What is the bread? The Word. Give me your instruction. Fill me with your words, your teaching. Jesus woke early, and we see it all through his ministry. He would wake early, and he would begin his days in the Word, in the morning. And Isaiah chapter 50, verse 4, a prophecy in which Jesus himself is speaking. It tells us the following, The Lord God hath given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to the person who is weary. He wakens morning by morning. He wakens my ear to hear as the learned. And my prayer for you this year, as we start into a new year and consider new things and new challenges ahead, my prayer is that you will wake to the word. It's that simple. That you will wake to the Word. That you will see the Word of God as daily manna. Not as something to wait until Wednesday for or look forward to Sunday for. Put your Bible on your nightstand. Put it on your kitchen counter. Put it on the back of the toilet if you have to. But be in the Word every morning. Every day. And then we, like Jeremiah, can say the following. Jeremiah 15, 16. Your words were found and I ate them. And your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart.